That was fun. great. That was so good. Oh, Catherine, we're a team, honey. Listen, that was fun. Hi, Coke Scholar family and friends. Welcome to season two of The Sip, the podcast that shares a taste of the Coke scholars around the world who are igniting positive change. My name is Erica Jones, and I'm a proud 2011 Coca-Cola scholar, originally from Los Angeles, and now finishing up my final year of ministry school in Northern California. I'm an actor, a poet, a storyteller, but most importantly, a lover of people. For those of you who are listening and may not be a Coca-Cola scholar, welcome. We are glad to have you. To give you a little background, the Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation is the largest achievement-based and corporate-sponsored scholarship program in the country. Each year, it awards $20,000 to 150 high school students across the country who share a unique passion for service and leadership. It's a competitive program to get into, but once you're a Coke Scholar, the benefits go far beyond the money for college. You become a part of this bigger family for life. If you want to learn more, you can visit their website at coca-colascholarsfoundation.org. Welcome back to The Sip. It's Erica, and I am hoping that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And I know that it was probably a little bit unorthodox for some of you this year, but I'm hoping that you got a chance to tell someone that you are grateful for them. And if you haven't, it's never too late to send that text message or to make that phone call. In a really tumultuous year, I know that I'm personally grateful for world changers and folks that are set on building bridges. And speaking of world changers and building bridges, in our fourth episode, 2006 scholar Chantel George will be talking with 2004 scholar Catherine Minshew, co-founder and CEO of The Muse, about her entrepreneurial spirit and her passion for helping people navigate their careers. As the founder and CEO of Chantel George Consulting, Chantel brings more than 10 years of post-secondary experience in the areas of higher education, college and career readiness, and nonprofit leadership. A champion for student choice and success, Chantel began her professional career in higher education, coaching and advising students through their journey to and through the college experience. To date, she's built and maintained more than 30 strategic partnerships between K through 12 districts, institutions of higher education, and nonprofits, all to improve and close the gaps that exist for underserved students in transitioning and persisting from high school to post-secondary education. Chantel is currently pursuing her doctorate degree in higher education at LSU this fall. What a way to build bridges, Chantel. Now let's learn a little bit about Catherine. A CEO and founder of The Muse, one of Fast Company's 50 most innovative companies in the world, Catherine Minshew spends every single day helping create the future of work. For individuals, this means helping over 50 million people use The Muse to navigate their careers. For companies, they help them to tell a more authentic, data-driven employer story and to showcase the unique employee experiences and values that make them special. Ultimately, the goal is to help both sides find the right fit. Previously, Catherine worked on vaccine introduction in Rwanda and Malawi with the Clinton Health Access Initiative, and prior to that at the management consultancy McKinsey & Company. She's the author of The New Rules of Work, a Wall Street Journal national bestseller. She's also the host of the New Rules of Work podcast. I'm excited to learn more about how
how Catherine has re-engineered and reimagined the way we think about work and the workspace. I'm equally as excited to hear about how she navigates her own world, all while bringing healthy transformation to our work cultures. What a hero. Now, without further ado, here's Chantel and Catherine. Hello, Catherine. How are you? Hello. I'm excited to be here. Excited to have you. Um, so, you know, it is an interesting time in the world. And, uh, you know, I'm so happy to have the time to connect with you, for us to connect with each other. Um, and so let's just start off with, with getting to know who you are. Tell us a little bit about your background, your upbringing, and, and what you're working on right now. All right. Well, um, I was born in Dallas, Texas, but mostly grew up outside of Washington, D.C. And for a long time, um, when I was younger, from probably age 13, 14 until um, really until uh, late college, I thought that I was going to be a foreign service officer or a CIA agent, um, a.k.a. I wanted to be an international woman of mystery. Um, I, uh, I think actually I got the idea from that television show, Alias, that was really popular in the late 90s and early mm-hmm. 2000s that Jennifer Garner played a total, you know, badass, super uh, kind of super double agent. But um, I ended up, uh, you know, working at a U.S. embassy in Cyprus in the Mediterranean, realizing that the career path I thought I wanted didn't actually, you know, reflect what I what I thought it would be like. And it got me fascinated by how people uh, pick their careers, how people make decisions about what job they take, what company they work for, um, and that led me about nine years ago to start the Muse, which is the business that. I I run today. Um, it's a job search and career platform. We have, um, gosh, about 75 million people every year who come to the site to uh, find that kind of right fit. So that can be the right fit job, the right fit company, the right fit career path. Um, and that's, uh, that's me in a nutshell. Awesome. Well, shout out to Dallas, Texas. I lived in Houston for about eight and a half years. And so definitely uh, call Texas a little bit of home. And what you're describing is just so important nowadays, especially when it comes to careers. So careers for students that are about to graduate, careers for young professionals, um, individuals that are thinking about shifting careers. What is some advice you would give to individuals as they are thinking about maybe starting a new career, especially now during the pandemic, right? I feel like a lot of individuals Individuals have been opening new businesses or just having the time to think about some things. Yeah, well, it's such an interesting time for that. Anytime you've got major upheaval in the world or in someone's life, it, it brings up these questions of should I be doing something differently? And so there's some, um, I mean, obviously, we probably could write a book on advice for people changing careers, but <laughs> a few of the top things that I always like to recommend. Um, the first is I think the most powerful careers align with your personal values and goals. And so I think before you jump into something new, it could be really helpful to just take a step back and think, what matters to me? What sort of life do I want to live? What, um, you know, what things are my non-negotiables? Um, and, and what am I willing to give up? Because you can't necessarily, you know, get a 10 out of 10 on every dimension, but you can maximize your career for the things that are most important. And so, for example, some people might care about compensation, stability, prestige. Someone else might want creativity, flexibility, you know, no two days the same. Um, there's a, such a wide variety 
variety of options out there. And so I think it can be really helpful to go through an exercise to ask yourself, what are my values? And if you're having trouble coming up with that list, you can think about when you've been in flow state, what sorts of activities attract you. You can talk to friends, relatives, colleagues, parents, professors, whoever you have in your life who's seen you work and ask them what they think you value. But make sure that you don't take their values as your own because really it's about what matters to you. And then I think you can look at different career paths, different jobs and start to assess, you know, do I think I would maybe be able to get that sort of experience out of this path? Um, you know, you, if you're, if you're mid career, um, taking an inventory about what transferable skills you might have is always a really helpful place to start. And again, um, there's a lot of different ways to do that. We actually probably have, you know, I don't know, 25 articles on transferable skills on the muse.com alone. But one of the things I actually love to tell people to do is to, uh, go to a job search site. You can use the muse. You can use, you know, one of the other ones, whatever, but, um, find a job description for a role that is similar to the one you're in now. And then maybe a few job descriptions for roles that are, um, aspirational places you think you might want to go in the future and then just get a highlighter. And for the one you're in now, highlight what skills you have today in that job description. And then in a different colored highlighter, look at the others and highlight what skills you might need to acquire or develop. And that can just be a really helpful way of helping you say, okay, well, I've got a few of the things that I need already, but if I want to move in this direction, I should get some customer facing experience. Mm -hmm. I should, um, you know, raise my hand to take on planning for a cross departmental initiative, whatever it is, uh, that sort of, you know, literal job description by job description comparison can kind of help shine a light on what you might have and what you might want to develop. Yeah, that is so important. Transferable skills. Um, I had the opportunity to uh, talk to some students today and we were discussing transferable skills of like, even if you are switching careers or changing your majors or trying to figure out um, what you want to do, there are certain what I would call the soft skills, the basic skills that can be utilized in so many different professions, whether it's like using Excel or grant writing or public speaking. Um, so that that is super important. And so um, as you have been reflecting and going through your journey and before you even started the muse, what made you decide that you wanted to go the entrepreneur right, right route, right? Um, because that it, it is a special world <laughs> being yeah. a business owner as someone myself who just launched her business. Um, tell us a little bit about what that decision was for you to really kind of go off and branch and do your own thing. And how, how has that um, changed you as a person and, and the way you kind of think about careers um, as a whole, that difference between um, being an entrepreneur versus like actually working for someone. Yeah. Well, I had a, a couple of jobs before I went out on my own. Um, in addition to the, uh, the state department, which I mentioned, I worked for McKinsey and company as a management consultant, mm -hmm. uh, based in New York city, but traveling all around. And then I did a stint with the, um, Clinton health access initiative, which is a big nonprofit, part of the Clinton foundation, uh, mostly based in Kigali, Rwanda and working on vaccine introduction. So I'd, I'd had a couple of different, um, different kind of iterations of my, of my early career. And, um, I, I honestly sort of fell into entrepreneurship almost on accident. And I actually like sharing that because when I was younger, at least being an entrepreneur or working at a startup was not a big thing that a lot of people did. And I had this sense, first of all, that entrepreneurs knew from childhood that they wanted to be entrepreneurs. And that was not me. I thought I wanted to be, like I said, either a foreign service officer, maybe like an actor on Broadway. Like I had a lot of dreams. Being an entrepreneur was not 
one of them until I was, you know, in my sort of mid twenties. And then secondly, when I first got involved in tech, everyone that I saw on stages in magazines, they were all like, you know, they looked like the 22 year old white guy that dropped out of Stanford. And mm-hmm. that was also not me. I didn't know how to code. Um, uh, you know, there, there were all of these ways, obviously I'm, I'm female. I, you know, was, I was so many in so many different ways, I was different from the archetype mm-hmm. that it took me a while to realize this is something I can do too. And so, you know, the, the sort of abbreviated version of how I got into it, um, is that when I was leaving McKinsey, um, and moving to Kigali, I ended up having a, a couple of conversations with friends of mine who were, who were working at McKinsey still. And one of them was, I mean, literally it was in a car on the way back from a bar where a couple of colleagues had had a drink after work. And, uh, this girl says to me, you know, um, it's so frustrating that women's magazines are all about like what color of nail polish is hot mm-hmm. for fall, but nobody's talking about how to get a raise and how to be successful. And Like 10 years ago, there was none of this content, especially for women, for young women that was very modern, very fresh, very relevant. And so we started talking and she's like, I think we should start a print magazine to which I immediately said, Oh no, I did. I worked at a print magazine in college, um, but we should start a digital publication because it'll be a lot more affordable. It'll be, you know, it's just, it, it was much more aligned with our skill set. And so we came up with this idea. Let's start an online website with career content for women. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. We ended up recruiting two other women, um, all early twenties, and we started publishing this, this blog effectively. And, you know, it was, it was not a quote unquote startup in a lot of ways at the beginning. Mm-hmm. We had no money. We didn't try to raise money. We all had other full-time jobs. We were working on it, but I loved it. I loved it so, so much. And so when there, there came this sort of opportunity where I realized I, I probably should quit my job and focus on this thing full-time if I was going to be serious. Mm-hmm. And what I did is I basically gave myself six months to not stress out. Um, I had been saving in my first job. I was actually very lucky in that my best friend at the time um, was working in theater. And so I basically decided like we, we moved into this tiny apartment and I said, I'm going to try and live on similar expenses to her and any, you know, Delta, any amount I get from my paycheck over and above my basic living expenses, I'm going to sock away into a fund that will give me the freedom to do whatever I want after this consulting job, because I don't know what that is, but it might not pay so well. And I, I just want to have freedom. And so when I decided to start a business, I thought, okay, I can cover my living expenses for six months. Mm-hmm. And if it's six months, it hasn't worked out. I'll have to go get another job, but I'm willing to bet on myself. I'm going to invest that six months of living expenses in myself. And I dove in. And, you know, the funny thing is, um, six months later, that business basically went up in flames. But at that point, I was so convinced in the opportunity of the muse. I was such a believer that, that we could build a business that me and one of the other women from that first initiative, um, basically started over and we started the muse and, uh, you know, the, the rest, rest is history. Is history. That is such a, <laughs> you know what? And I was about to ask you, um, what steps do you take when you're working a full-time job and then stepping um, into, you know, the, the business 100% in which you just described was so key around saving money, getting your plan together, saving for six months. Um, I think that is so important. And the other piece, just, uh, just being a woman, just being a woman as a business owner is, is difficult. I'm happy to see so many of us that are out there now, especially like being a woman of color, myself. Um, But it's also very challenging. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, as a woman and a business leader, what are the obstacles that you've had to overcome? What is some advice you would give to some other young women who are looking to start their own business? 
Yeah. Well, I think that we still clearly have such a long way to go when it comes to equal access, equal opportunity um, for, you know, for, for people of different genders, for people of different races and ethnicities. And I think that, you know, the, the tech industry has made some strides, but I'm also very frustrated by the data that shows that, you know, women, for example, I think still receive less than 3% um, of all venture capital funding. And so, you know, my path was, was, definitely littered with a lot of the um, obstacles you read about. So when I started The Muse, I think I was about 25 years old. Um, I looked young as well. So um, a lot of people patted me on the head. Oh, that's such a cute project. People, and, and by people specifically, I mean older men, were mm-hmm. often still calling my business a project when we had a million dollars in revenue and 10 employees. And I wanted to be like, wow. I'm pretty sure you're not calling your other entrepreneurs, businesses, their little project. Um, you know, I've had an investor proposition me for sex. Um, I've, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of crazy stuff happen. It has gotten better. I will say that it is nowhere near where it needs to be, but it has gotten better. And I think the things that have helped me get through it, and by the way, that's not every woman's experience, mm-hmm. but, um, but I, I do think that for me, it was having an amazing community of other women that I was, uh, supported by, that I provided support for because it, it can be really hard. Frankly, being an entrepreneur in general, and you know this, like it yeah. is just hard. It, it is, is brutally hard at times, no matter who you are, no matter what advantages or disadvantages you have. And then on top of that, you add all of these different ways that you might not be privileged. You might not look like, again, like the classic Mark Zuckerberg model. Mm-hmm. And it makes it that much harder in terms of being taken seriously, getting access to capital. Um, you know, another thing that I think is so interesting is there's a lot of really um, thorough research that's been done in corporate environments about the difference between how men and women are promoted. And one of the themes that comes out in almost every single research study is that men are often promoted based on potential, whereas women are promoted based on performance. Mm -hmm. So a woman will need to actually demonstrate very clearly that she can do the job to get the chance to do it. Whereas often, um, particularly because, you know, leadership is more likely to be male. Sometimes they say, oh, he looks like me when I was younger, or I feel like he can handle it. And they'll give you know, men that chance based on potential. And, and again, this has been documented by, I think, researchers from almost every major right, university. Right. What's so interesting is the research into how those same biases play out in entrepreneurship is, it's a little bit less developed than in a corporate setting, but it, there seems to be very clear indications that when investors look at entrepreneurs, they look at men and they see the potential mm-hmm. and they look at women and they say, but, but have you proven you can do it? But, right. but are you absolutely, you know, can you convince me beyond a shadow of a doubt? And the fact is, most early stage businesses, nothing is beyond a shadow of a doubt because you're trying to do something that's never been done. So for me, it was, again, it was um, surrounding myself with other incredible entrepreneurs and especially, you know, this really kind of incredible, passionate, diverse set of women. We could help each other trade advice, you know, commiserate when something frustrating or, or really difficult happened. Um, and then, you know, I've also, um, I've done a lot of what I would call like A-B testing in my own day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. I tried wearing different things to pitch meetings. I tried different locations. I try to pay a lot of attention. What works for me? Because what works for another entrepreneur might not work for you. That's okay. For me, it was like wearing black leather to pitch meetings, doing them in offices so I could be a little bit more um, serious and and focused versus in a coffee shop where you're like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. Would you Mm -hmm. like a coffee? Oh, sure. You know, like, no, if I was already getting dinged for being young, for being female, I needed to show up ready to play. And I had to pick environments and situations that let me do that. 
I also discovered that when I pitched on stage, people were much more likely to invest than when I met them in a casual context. So, I mean, I could talk about this for like yeah. hours. I don't want to bore everybody, but <laughs> it was really, um, you know, thinking about it like, uh, like a process where you're constantly learning and tweaking and iterating and trying to figure out what's right for you. Yeah, that's so important. Um, just having that support system, as you mentioned, is is key. As for myself as well, I ask a ton of questions. Um, I fail forward <laughs> every day. Is how I put it. I fail forward, and um, but it's a blessing that a lot of women. Before I decided to start consulting, I spent about three to four months just talking to different women to ask them about how did you raise money, how did you get investors, um, what were the challenges, what should I expect, and as you mentioned, it is not glamorous. It is not glamorous. <laughs> at all it, it is it is a lot of work um and it's really really hard as a woman but but we're out here and we're doing it um as far as you think of if you think ahead in the next 10 years what are you hoping to accomplish where would you like to see the muse grow Oh, I love that question because I think, um, you know, you've got to have a vision of the future that excites you to, to kind of push through all the challenges of building a company. And for me, a part of that vision of, of the future is this idea of fit. It's the right fit between an individual and the place they work, the job they work in and the career path that they're on. And I just think as a society, like we have not done a good job of that, right? When I was in college, um, you know, I, I want to say like what, 12 ish years ago, I remember going to my local college uh, kind of career center and, and trying to ask some questions about careers. And they're like, well, um, you can be a, a lawyer, uh, a doctor, um, go to Teach for America, work in iBanking, or we have this great book called 498 Careers for you know Liberal Arts Majors. And I was mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. that's what? That's not that helpful. So I think that for me, for the muse, I want to give people a way to both um, answer questions and, and browse information that help them identify what do they value, what skills do they have, and what is the right job, company, and career that matches that. And, um, and I think that, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about company because I think that the match between an individual and the organization where they work is so powerful. It's honestly, mm -hmm. it's a lot like a relationship, right? It is. What is yeah, it is. And, and when it works, it's beautiful. People love their jobs, their colleagues, the culture. They feel successful, supported, et cetera. When it doesn't work, it's demotivating, frustrating. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you think about, you know, what is one of the first rules of dating? It's different strokes for different folks. People are very different. People are looking for diff very different things. You've got to be yourself. You've got to find someone else who's being themselves. And you got to see if those two things match. There's no idea of like, who are the 10 best people to date in New York City? Like that's silly, <laughs> but we still have all these lists right there that are like, oh, the 10 best companies to work for. Like right. I think those lists honestly are bull. I don't know if I can say that. Sorry. But yeah. I think the idea of like some sort of arbitrary objective, every company rated on exactly the same factors is just so silly, frankly. Right. And so a part of my vision for the muse is to really get much better at articulating and helping organizations articulate specifically, what are they like to work for? Mm -hmm. What is the good? What is the frustrating? What is the, the quirks, the personality? And then helping someone on the outside say, yeah, yeah, I, I'd like that. Or frankly, no, no, that is not for me. Great. I have to tell the HR partners that we work with because most of how the Muse makes money is companies that buy a subscription to our platform to hire okay. great millennial and Gen Z talent. And we can talk a little bit more about the business model because I had to do a lot of trial and error to figure that out. But I have to tell, you know, HR and talent leaders all the time. 
if somebody's looking at your profile on the Muse and they decide not to apply to your jobs because it doesn't seem like a good fit, that is great. That is incredible. That means that they have saved themselves time. You and your team have saved yourself exactly. time because you want to get someone who likes the job that they accept, right? And one of the things I'm proudest of is that compared to a lot of other job boards, we're both far more efficient in how many applicants it takes to get a hire and our hires stay longer. And to me, that should be the whole point of hiring, right? It is. Retaining. Retaining high-level talent. Um, and, and that is so key and something I think about as someone who's worked in so many different places and I've worked at awesome places, not so awesome places, just depending. And, and, and it, it is like a relationship. It, it, you know, it could either be a great, a sweet dream or a beautiful nightmare, as Beyonce <laughs> would say. Like, it literally could be one or the two. Um, and I, I've looked out where I've had some tremendous opportunities and some amazing managers and places that have had great culture. But that, that is not the case for everyone. And it's so important to find the right match because it is such a headache to have to constantly rehire and the turnover. And, you know, so oh, that yeah. is so good important. for anybody, right? It's, it's, it's more expensive so... to have to rehire. Absolutely. Exactly. And you think about also all the institutional knowledge when somebody moves on, especially, I mean, I tell a lot of our employers, the worst thing that can happen to you is you hire someone and they leave in three to six months. Oh yeah. We've invested a lot of time, a lot of, of time. money. Exactly. And, and then they're gone. You either want to, you know, you, you want to hire someone and have them stay for a couple of years. And I actually think that, um, Honestly, I think that the way that we've measured the success of hiring processes is is really not serving us because most of the companies that I talk to, their recruiting teams are still gold on cost and time, which mm -hmm. means how fast did you make the hire? How cheap did you make the hire? But again, that is not the number one point of a hire. And that's like a get the butt in the seat kind of mentality. Right. And so a big part of what I've been advocating for in the broader industry around the future of work, around careers, is that as employers, we should measure things like are the people that we're hiring happy? Are they productive? Are they staying? Mm -hmm. um, you know, would their managers hire them again? That's what a successful hiring process is. It's not just racing to the, you know, the lowest common denominator or the bottom line. Those things are important, of course, but they're sub bullets after you get the hire right. They're not an excuse to, to, you know, get it the wrong person in the door. And sorry, by the way, the last thing, one of the reasons I care about this so much is, um, you know, I, it, sometimes I think, companies or recruiters feel a pressure to tell candidates things that aren't true um, in an effort to just close the role. Oh, yes, we're very innovative. Oh, we're so diverse. No, you've got to be honest because if you sell people a bill of goods to get them in the door, you've just got uh, you know a, an unhappy and disappointed employee on your hands. And again, that does not serve anyone. It doesn't serve them. It doesn't serve you. It does not. It does not. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And so obviously, one thing that connects us is that we are both Coke scholars. If you could rewind to your 17 year old self, you know, pre scholars weekend, what advice would you give the 17 year old Catherine? Uh, I love this question. And, you know, the thing that comes to mind first is I wish I would have told her, like, chill out, you're doing okay. Mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes young people who are passionate, who are motivated, they put so much pressure on themselves to get it right, right away. I remember agonizing in, you know, in, in high school about which college to go to and in college about which job to take. And there was a part of me that acted like, you know, if I don't get it right, like my life is over. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the reality is like, we live in a world where people are going to change careers 
you know, often six to eight times in their lifetime. Exactly. Sometimes 10 plus, like there is a lot of flexibility. So I often encourage young people to one, take a deep breath. You're doing fine Mm -hmm. (laughs) Two, you know, think about what you can learn perhaps a little bit more than what you get. Um, I would always encourage someone to take a job opportunity early in their career where they think they're going to learn and grow tremendously over one that pays a little bit more money, unless there's a very specific reason that you must have that money. Otherwise, you will be able to invest the the experiences and the skills that you gain into a higher salary and a a better career path later on. and so I also think, I guess, last, last thing I would tell, you know, 17 year old Catherine is, um, and actually I, I'm, I feel like I actually did a good job of this. Um, it's like your early career is a great time to take risks it you is. Know, now in your mid thirties, for example, if I was like, Oh, I want to go like intern and in brand marketing or like, like that is hard. It is complicated. You worry about maybe being embarrassed in front of people who know you is like really, really good in one industry. And now you're, you know, and you can do it. And, and I, I, I think people should do a career change, frankly, at any age. Yeah. But I really tell young people, like, you don't realize the gift you have in being able to just try. So like take an internship in some super random field that you think you might be interested in, you know, Look at me. Like I, I'm going to build my career in technology. I've been in technology for you know nine years, ten years, or almost. Um, but my early career experiences were uh, vaccine introduction and global health in East Africa, mm-hmm. um, working in New York City and across Ohio and uh, Michigan and Missouri, and management consulting, doing a lot of mortgages, like all these random different things. But I love those experiences. I wouldn't trade them for the world. And I'm so grateful that I had the ability to just try and and fail and test different things out um, at that stage in my life, because it really is such an opportunity to, um, you know, to, to sort of spread your interests set wide. Yeah, that is so important and so key. Even for myself, I'm like, you know what? The sky's the limit. There are so many jobs that I find out about that I'm like, man, if I would have known that 10 years ago and I was like, I was sharing with students too. I'm like, the jobs that are available now in the next 10 years, there's going to be more jobs that are that are going to be available to them, you know, within the next 10 years. And so I agree. I believe in taking risk and, you know, seeing what happens, throwing a bunch of things up at the wall and seeing what sticks. It's never too late to change your career. I started off in healthcare. I was a cancer researcher for the first three years right out of college. Loved it, but knew it wasn't really my passion and my jam. And then I shifted careers completely to higher education. I've been in this college access space uh, and I probably will stay in this space because it actually is the reason why I was put on this earth. I'm convinced. Um, but I love but, that. What a gift yeah. to know that. What a gift. Exactly. Yeah, and, it's and- what I want to wake up and do every day. Absolutely. And probably some of the same things that drew you to be initially interested in healthcare are probably, I would guess, mm-hmm. still true. Supporting people. They just, exactly. They just manifest and show up in very different ways. Exactly. All right. So one, a couple of questions left. Um, what, if you were not in your current role, as far as, you know, business owning, owning the muse, what would you do? What, what other job would you want to have? Well, um, I'm gonna, well, okay. So restaurant critic, if that were an option, I mean, being paid to go around and eat delicious food, that sounds terrible. Don't make me do it. Um, but no, I, I, I'll give you actually a slightly more serious answer, which is, um, I love, I love supporting women entrepreneurs and I love learning about women entrepreneurs. I want to encourage more women to start businesses and step out on their own. And so, um, if I, we're not doing this. 
I would either, if I had some sort of experience like this, I'd love to advise, Mm -hmm. invest in, help other women entrepreneurs. Honestly, I also made so many just like stupid operational mistakes in the early days of the muse (laughs) that I would love to help like another person avoid some of those, you know, and, and just, uh, be able to focus on their product and their market and their vision. And, and, um, so that would be one. The other thing I've always thought would be really fun would be to convince, um, a television network to let me do a TV show for them where I fly around the world interviewing female entrepreneurs and sort of shining a spotlight on just amazing women creatives and business owners all around the world. And also it would scratch my secret itch for travel. So if anybody's listening to this, um, please and, and interested, I mean, I need like, you know, like five to 10 years because I'm pretty right. on this muse thing, but, uh, but come back to me later. <laughs> no, I love that idea. I, I like personally want to have my own talk show. And so at some point I'm, I'm hoping to do that. So I okay, agree. We'll do, and we'll I love to travel too. Well, the partnered in crime. There you go. All right. So to, to, to end us, I have this little game we're going to play called the fast five. So I'm going to ask you, it's just like the, you know, really quick, whatever comes to mind on these questions. Are you ready? Oh boy. All Here right. We go. All right. So the first one is what are two apps or websites you can't live without? Ooh, Instagram, uh, because I, it's how I keep up with my friends and their babies, and then Pocket, because I like to save articles uh, to read them later. There we go. All right. Number two, if I looked at the music on your iPhone or iPod right now, what would surprise me? There's a lot of country. Okay. I'm a huge country fan. It's so happy. It's so it's so awesome. Um, there's also a lot of Taylor Swift that probably wouldn't surprise you. Um, yeah, I would say I like that, Taylor. Uh, and and actually a lot of Broadway, some Disney, some Hamilton. Again, Hamilton. I don't know how surprising. Yeah, I could probably I could probably sing it end to end. I, I honestly I love Hamilton. Not sure that there's any part of that musical <laughs> that I haven't committed to memory at this point. You know, I saw it twice in Chicago by myself, literally like rolled up there the day of, got a really cheap ticket, like second row and lived my absolute best life. So I'm here for oh the Hamilton. Gosh. It's amazing for entrepreneurs, by the way, because I think the the seeing the story of how the United States was a bit of a hot mess in the early days really made me feel better <laughs> about the evolution of, of my company in the in the early days as well. There you go. All right. Favorite book or piece of music or art that has helped or inspired you in your life? Oof. Um, so there's, so Hamilton is often a candidate for this. I, I truly, um, I saw the show within the first month after it went on Broadway mm-hmm. and it was very, very meaningful because of what I was going through as an entrepreneur, as an individual at that point. But just to throw something else out there, there's a Tom Stoppard play called Arcadia mm-hmm. that is, um, it was written in 1992 and it, it sort of concerns this idea of like, how do you know what happened in history? And there's, I don't know, there's like chaos theory and the second law of thermodynamics. It's a really ridiculous play, but um, I fell in love with it when I was probably 16 years old and it's been a favorite all the way through. Arcadia. I'll have to check that one out. All right. What quote or motto do you live your life by? (laughs) Um, If I had to pick one, I'd say uh, everything worth doing is hard. I don't know if that's exactly a quote, but like, like there's a Walt Disney quote. It's kind of fun to do the impossible. Mm-hmm. There's a, a phrase I often use around like, look, if it were easy, everyone would do it. I think right. that the idea that really, really worthwhile things take effort, they take time, they're challenging. Um, that's, that's probably the, uh, the idea or the concept that I most resonate with. 
Very true. Um, what makes the Koch Scholars Program or network unique? The people. Um, I I have just loved being part of this incredible community of other scholars. I think it's, you know, I just, the opportunity to meet and have this immediate common ground with so many incredible, brilliant, awesome, hilarious, interesting people all over the country um, is really special. It was special when I joined in 2004 and um, it's special now. So yeah, that would be, that would be my answer. Awesome. I echo all of that as well. We are a family. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for the time. Uh, I enjoyed it. I'm sure everyone who listens in will enjoy it. Um, And how do people find out about The Muse? Oh, yeah. Um, So you can go to themuse.com, T-H-E-M-U-S-E.com. You can Google The Muse. We should be number one on Google. Um, You can find us on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on all the channels. But um, I would definitely encourage people to go to the website, check it out. Um, You can tweet at me at Kmin, K-M-I-N. Let me know what you think. Um, And uh, yeah, just very uh, excited to hear uh, feedback. And thank you again for having me. We hope you enjoyed the fourth episode of season two of The Sip, featuring Chantel and Catherine. To learn more about the muse or other things they discussed, check out our show notes or coca-colascholarsfoundation.org. And if you have an extra minute, we'd love for you to rate the show or to leave us a review. Check back in two weeks when 1992 scholar Sue Sue talks with 1990 scholar Jason Feldman, who co-founded Vault Health, the first company to provide specialized health care for men at home. They also provide at-home COVID-19 saliva testing for everyone, which is amazing. See you next time on The Synth.